Marge Piercy's 17 novels include New York Times bestseller Gone to Soldiers, national bestsellers Braided Lives and The Longings of Women, the classics Woman on the Edge of Time and He, She, and It, and her critically acclaimed memoir Sleeping with Cats. She's written 20 volumes of poetry. The most recent is On the Way Out, Turn Off the Light. Born in Detroit, educated at the University of Michigan and Northwestern, she is active in anti-war, feminist, and environmental causes. Marge Piercy, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So you've just published, uh, your new collection of poetry is On the Way Out, Turn Off the Light. So you're going to, you've selected some poems you're going to read from this. Yes. The first is, language has shaped my life. Works in my business. How I've made house, food, machines, clothing, taxes happen every month. Words are pointers to fact and lies. Words are how we shape stories that map my own and others' lives. Words go back and forth between us, carrying love and promises, anger and memories we cherish off key. Words jumble themselves into rich nonsense as I sleep, as vows are vows sacred or just shaped air? When I lie down at final time, will I speak last words or just shut up and let silence have its way? Save me. At the MSPCA, dogs were barking in terror and anger. Older cats looked at us in hopeless appeal from their cages. In the cage of kittens, one black and beige girl reached out through bars and grabbed Woody's arm. Take me, take me, Zena cried. Picked up, she purred madly, purred in the car all the way home. I was a poor Jewish girl from a black ghetto, mad to escape family, the neighborhood, Detroit, friends pregnant at 16, gang raped at 13, whored at 12. Zena could smell death. I didn't know the university was great, but it was miles away. An alumni group visited our schools, interviewing scholarship applicants. I assumed a girly persona, I hope would save me, smiled not too much. I invented hobbies, mentioned tutoring and tennis, playing piano, that was true. Yes, I had friends at school, other outcasts. In my neighborhood, yes, I dated when studies permitted. I'd had lovers in eighth and ninth grades, but had never gone on an actual date. I had a steady boyfriend for a year, yes, but he got too serious. I made the scholarship. At college, all A's, but back to my radical, loud, mouth, sexually busy Jewish self. Zia is huge, a hunter, treats the other cats as kittens. She's never more than a foot away, day or night, from us taking care. We both saved our young lives. Who can hold them? What can save them? When my mother died, when my grandmother died, all those memories I never got to catch and keep vanished to dust smokes, 
floating in the skein of silver moonlight and gone. Maybe I'm a poet in part because I want to seize all those memories that flit and vanish and seal them into the perfect resonance jewels of amber, moments transfixed and perfected like Jurassic wasps. Questions I never thought to ask in childhood, hang like dead birds around my neck. Never will I know my great-grandfather, the rabbi's first name, or what his wife was like. How did Grandmother Hannah get along with her mother? Was that who told her all those tales of Balaam's and Dybbuk she passed on to me? More precious than the doll clothes she sewed from scraps of old dresses. They both told stories, but never enough. Parts their lives edited out, too caked with old blood, too harsh in the mouth like lie. Even though I write 40 or 50 books, my private memories will ride on the wind away like milkweed fluff. Can't you hear them? Listen carefully every morning, afternoon, night. Hear the crying of children yanked from their mothers, torn from fathers by brutal strangers without explanation, without pity, without mercy, locked away in crowded dorms with predators and other kids who know no more than they do. My French husband was taken from his parents when they fled the Nazis into Switzerland. He was scarred for life, always convinced his parents loved his younger brother more than him. Kids think that their parents could have kept them, wonder what they did to get locked up. Will they ever again see their mothers? The government judges them so trivial, why bother with accurate records? I hear them crying like hungry birds. I hear their terror and pain like distant thunder rumbling. In cages they huddle. Such pain won't dissipate, but sinks into our names and brains, our history. Well, those are uh, such you know, beautiful and thoughtful uh, poems that I have to, <laughs> there's several um, threads to unpack on that, excuse me. But um, I thank you for the selection because you, you're going through, you know, your beginnings as a, a writer in, in Detroit and you're, I guess, when you fell in love with language and just the beauty and the sadness of the last one where you're discussing the situation of children at the border. But one thing for me, what I find so beautiful about your writing is that there are many moments of beauty and grace. And yet within the space of one line, you're not afraid to, you know, the anger, the justified anger to the situation, you know, the world is broken. We're breaking it. And yet you find time. Broken it. Yeah. it isn't clear if we can come back from this. A lot depends on the election, whether there's any hope of, re of coming back or not. The election, then there's two, you know, there's also the confirmation. Well, I guess we could speak about that later, but there's also the confirmation process that's happening now, too. That is going to strip 
all the rights we most care about from women, plus the Affordable Care Act, plus every piece of garbage that can be done to people who don't have money. Well, I mean, there's some controversial suggestions that maybe we could uh, introduce more, you know, add more judges to the process. I don't know how possible that would be, but um, Roosevelt did it. (laughs) It's been done at least twice. Why not? Very young ones. (laughs) So that's what we asked. Well, right right out of law school would be fine. You understand? There's no criteria for Supreme Court judges. None. Uh, they're not required to have a law degree. They're not required to have any experience. You could nominate a four-year-old if, was, if the Republicans trusted him. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because now we're discovering, I mean, I, do, I, I like to get political, but I don't want to neglect your writing, which is which is which runs parallel to what's happening in the world but you as a writer have are known also for your your activism uh, on behalf of women's rights well ever since i i got active in civil rights when i was still in college i i've been active in all the anti-war movements i've been active in women's rights of course since 1967 when they finally could get other women interested <laughs> Uh, and uh, I've also been active in ecological things. I put a lot of effort into trying to close a very leaky old uh, nuclear plant that was polluting Massachusetts Bay, exactly the same type of plant that caused Fukushima. And we finally did get it closed. Now we're fighting about what they're going to do with all the spent rods. So there's many. There's always something. There's so much. You just choose whatever impacts you. There's so many things that have to be worked on. You just choose what moves you. I learned many years ago when I was an organizer that if you pick a project, I wanted to deal with Con Electric when I was living in New York because they were terribly polluting, overcharging, etc. But I couldn't get people excited about it. That's when I learned you can only organize people around what moves them. You inspire people through your poetry. Do you consider yourself an activist poet? I write about many things. If you look at this, it's organized into different parts. Language has shaped my life is the first part. Then comes into the twilight zone, which are all the poems about aging. I'm 84. Then there's the political poems. Then there's the poems about love and relationship. Then there's my Jewish poems. And then there's my nature poems. And last, there's poems about family and connection. I write about many, many things. To me, it's all one vision. You also shared in some of your Jewish or your family poems, almost the idea of um, writing as a way of understanding experiences that your family members may have had and didn't tell you about or trying to understand history. Yeah, you're always trying to understand where you came from, as well as trying to understand where you think you're going. Tell us what it was like growing up in Detroit, you know, and how you came to discover that you didn't just love reading, but you would make your life as a writer. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Detroit. At that point in time, 
Jews and blacks were always lumped together. I wasn't white until I went some point in high school and certainly in college, I became white. I didn't grow up being white. Jews weren't white any more than Italians or Greeks when they immigrated were, weren't white. You know, my family was poor. Uh, I never saw a dentist until I was 18 years old. When I had rheumatic fever, the doctor came in, looked at me and said, she'll be dead in a week. Ten bucks, please. <laughs> that was medical and dental care. And it's about that bad for an awful lot of people now, especially if Obamacare is taken away. You're always having to choose when you're poor between food and medicine, possible dentist and fuel, uh, all the things that you need. I was very ill-dressed as a child. Sometimes I wore my Aunt Ruth's cast-offs, with a, which would have initial R on them. And the kids would make fun of that. that. That is the white girls. There were three white girls who persecuted me a lot in grade school. Uh, it wasn't much fun being a Jew growing up in Detroit. All the racism, all the hatred, all the anti-Semitism was out in the open. The uh, white, the silver shirts were were on corners handing out pamphlets about how awful we all were. Everyone who wasn't Aryan, uh, and it was just real clear all the time. We were terrified of the cops. We called them the Trojans because they were scumbags. <laughs> I was a, a complete tomboy until I had German measles followed by rheumatic fever. After that, I weighed about 25 pounds. I was pale blue and passed out all the time for about a year. Then I went back to playing often with the boys because I made up stories and would act out. But I started reading while I was ill. Up to that point, I'd had no interest in school. Suddenly, I shot to the top of my class. Suddenly, I began interested in reading, interested in learning, something that's never gone away. My parents, well, nobody in my family had ever gone to college since my grandfather. My parents didn't understand it. It was my idea, and I had to put myself through school because they, they wanted me to go to work. My mother's highest ambition for me was to be in the typing pool or maybe even be a secretary. And indeed, I've worked as a secretary. I've worked in almost everything. <laughs> and I also understand that you, you, apart from giving some workshops, you haven't gone the route of really teaching. You know, you very interested in learning, but you decided to be more a writer in the world. Um, so how do you feel that these many jobs that you, you've you had, you know, have helped you as a, a writer? You've written about a lot of different experiences in different countries and different periods of time. And I felt that I was beginning in graduate school. I graduated with the my MA with the highest score they'd ever gotten. And they tried to, they had, I was on a fellowship. It's just how I was able to go to graduate school. Basically, I was beginning to get ideas for academic papers instead of writing. And I also knew that I would never write what I was supposed to if I stayed in academia. It wouldn't be acceptable. I could see what the academic life was like, and it wasn't for me. I wasn't going to be able to do the work I needed to do if I stayed in that environment. I couldn't have been as political as I've been. 
I wouldn't have kept my job, especially as a woman, if I got a job. Also, where I live and where I've lived since 1971 is a village out on Cape Cod where your friends are not other academics. You might have an, an academic or two as a friend because people come out here, but your friends are shell fishermen, uh, contractors, people who work in stores, people who do all kinds of things, other writers and artists, people in from a very wide range. Plus, the oddest, one of the oddest things about the Cape is there's a lot of age mixing in the Outer Cape. I think most places are very segregated by age, but here you might go to a party and there'd be a 22-year-old and a 90-year-old. That's beautiful. So what is it that they're, they're not leaving, the young people aren't leaving the Cape because it's... Oh, so they have to often because, so, look, in the time I've been living here since 71, I've seen the Outer Cape change a lot. There's a lot of summer houses. When I moved here, there, there were almost no rich people. There were maybe two in town. Now there are a lot of quite wealthy people who have second homes here. Though at the moment, what's happened is since COVID, there are a lot more people in the Outer Cape who normally leave from New York, from New Jersey, from Boston, et cetera, because it's safe here. We have very low rates. We had two cases in March. One person died. The Outer Cape is one of the safest places you can possibly be. On the map of Massachusetts, there's red, yellow, green, and then there's white where it's negligible. And that's where we are, the Outer Cape. So there's a lot of different people here now. It's, I've seen it change. When I moved here, there were people who lived off the land. You can't do that anymore. Yes, yeah, so you wrote about the kind of people you're talking about, the summer visitors, the, a glamorous set in the, your novel, Summer People, you know, which is also, I guess, it's also dealing with the creative process and the cost of becoming. I didn't really want to focus on that, but it just seemed to, okay, it related to, to what you're talking about, the changing place. Uh, oh, I've written 17 novels. I've written an 18th, but I've aged out of New York. So I have to start looking. I haven't had the time to look for a small... It's such a terrible time for a book to come out. There's no one in the Knopf office, office in New York. No one. My editor's down in South Carolina. Sometimes I can't reach her because the power seems to keep going out. Often can't find anybody to ask a question of. And... And yet, I think that it's a time when people are really looking to poetry or, well, that's my impression, you know, we look to poetry at times like this. I think there's a lot of times when people look for, to poetry. In the early women's liberation movement, poetry was terribly important. You'd get a, 500 people at, any, at a reading any time, sometimes several thousand. People turned to poetry then to express what they needed to express. And I'm one of the poets who, while not be loved by academics necessarily, people actually use my poems. How many cats do you have? And you've written Sleeping With Cats, of course, your memoir. Um, they've been companions throughout your life. I'll only three at the moment because Zena died in May. She was my shadow. She was 
my guardian. She was perfect writer's cat. Uh, the poem I read was about. Yes. Uh, she died very suddenly. Uh, it was during COVID and uh, my regular vet had retired at the end of April. Uh, she went, it was too hard to continue. I couldn't find a vet who would see Zena until it was too late when I finally found one. So it was so sad. I'm, I'm sorry that um, that you went through that and that you have. Um, what, you, I mean, you you write about nature and how do you find inspiration from, you know, cats and other animals? Well, I'm an animal. Why not understand other animals? It can be very moving when a wild animal makes a relationship with you, as has happened to me with crows, even a skunk. We had, we had a friendly skunk for all who would follow us around when we were working in the garden. I mean, I find other animals very interesting. I like the communion with them when you can. We're in nature, they're in nature, we're sharing the environment. I live in the woods, so there's a lot of animal traffic through here. It seems like a simple observation to say that we are animals, but I think, you know, in this uh, technological age, I think people start to forget their animal nature or their, they forget they're living in their bodies <laughs> and it's, and they almost forget how to read people's tones and signals and all these things. I think we're becoming so close to our uh, computer interfaces. It's something I, uh, I worry about a bit, frankly. Well, I used to spend a lot of time walking in the woods. Unfortunately, a year ago, November, I was in Detroit and I was walking with a graduate student. And she, just as we were about to cross the street, she said, what is your creative process? And I turned to her and I stepped off the curb and I twisted my ankle so badly that I tore a tendon. I can no longer walk very far because of my ankle. I'll have a bum ankle all the rest of my life. You're so open to talk about, you know, you twisted your ankle and talk about the body and, you know, how it, transformations that it goes through, you know, as you age. And I wanted to ask, if it's not so personal, but you, you've shared your experiences as a young woman and uh, things that we're talking about Roe versus Wade, right? And you've yeah. shared, how did you find the courage to share your ex experience? Of, um, uh, it, it, as a writer... Your experiences are stuff you use. It's among the stuff that's available to you. you the lives of other people around you, uh, what you learn, everything from science to the lives of insects. It's all grist. I was proud of myself that when I was 18 and back home from college for the summer, I got pregnant. I couldn't find any way of getting an abortion and it was impossible as a poor woman. So I aborted myself. I almost bled to death, but I was very proud of myself because I had not permitted this to change, to shape my life, to prevent me from doing the things I felt I was supposed to do that I wanted to do. Uh, and it hurt like hell and I almost bled to death and I, yet I did it. So I, there was no hesitation on my part for sharing it because I was very proud of it, that I had dared to do it, that I had carried it through, that I had done it.
you know, it wasn't like the Supreme Court one day just said, oh, women have bodies. Oh, my God. Women have bodies. We should do something about it. We lobbied. We took to the streets. Even the high school students came out. We had demonstration after demonstration. We lobbied. We did everything. We forced it. They wanted to get the women out of the streets and out of their offices. Yeah, I think it's hard to mobilize right now, obviously. Um, no, but the tremendous mobilization has gone around, around Black Lives Matter and some of the anti of the treatment of people seeking asylum. There's been good demonstrations about that, too. People do come out. I can't march anymore. I can barely walk. But I certainly marched enough in my life. My name is Caroline Stoidel, and I am a recent graduate of New York University and a literature and music podcaster for the creative process. As I listened to the interview with Marge Piercy, I was struck by the constant overlap of the political and the creative. Whether reading Piercy's poetry or prose or listening to her speak, her devotion to activism and social justice is impossible to ignore. Her activism and her writing, if not one and the same, are inseparably linked, as exemplified when she describes her political awakening and her beginnings as a writer as the same event. This is the idea I kept returning to. It is impossible to separate Marge Piercy, the activist, from Marge Piercy, the writer. There is something simultaneously hopeful and hopeless in Piercy's statement at the beginning of the interview, ruminating on how much work there is to be done to improve the world around us. There's so many things that have to be worked on. You just choose what moves you. Paired with her frustration towards ignored warnings of the climate crisis is her pride for progress so far in women's rights. And along with that pride comes an acute awareness of the rights we stand to lose. This hopeful hopelessness is present in her political awakening, discussed later in the interview, fueled by the realization that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Present in all critiques of the world in which we live is the idea that things can and should be better than they are. And there is an inherent creativity in imagining and building, bit by bit, the world in which we believe we all deserve to live. Lately, in op-eds and angry Twitter comments, there has been a reoccurring theme. The idea that public figures, artists, writers, and creators included, should stay out of politics or stick to their craft. People will say, I liked their music or their stories or their art, but then they had to go and get all political. With Piercy's body of work, however, the political is inseparable from the artistic. Often, social injustice can be a fuel for creation, activism a vital aspect of an artist's life and work, and this is clearly true in Piercy's case. I write about many, many things, Piercy said. To me, it's all one vision. Looking across her career so far, you can see a collage of her experiences and her values, writing that spans genres and subjects to showcase, at its core, what matters to Piercy. As a young writer, I find myself inspired to examine what matters to me and what I am doing and creating about it. So when so your political awakening came roughly the same time you were being formed as a writer, like around the time of your the publication of your first poetry book? No, 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 much before that. When I was 15, three things happened. We sold our house. On either side of us, they were white. And when we sold our house to a black doctor, 
my boyfriend next door poisoned my cat. And at the same time, my grandmother died. She'd been the only human figure who gave me undivided love beside my cats. And she gave me my religious education and a lot of tales, a lot of stories from women's ghetto experience. And also a woman I loved. She died of a heroin overdose. Her pimp had gotten her hooked so she could endure it. So all of this was all not the way it was supposed to be, not the way they showed on television, not what we saw in books or anything. So I started having to write, and I also started had becoming political. I could see so much that was wrong in Detroit. I mean, you've also been an environmental activist. And yeah. I'm thinking back at those times, some of the green movements were just starting. If only we had listened. Well, some of us did. Uh, I have a novel. He, she, and it, which everybody wants to do Women on the Edge of Time. Everybody wants me to interview about that. He, she, and it is far more relevant. It's about the effects of climate change in 50 years. In fact, when I wrote it, I'd, I'd read all the, the science I could lay hands on. I knew what was happening. This was in the early 90s. But it's happening so much faster than anyone guessed at that time. I wouldn't put it 50 years in the future, about 20. It's also a politics as a spectator sport and the enormous power of corporations that create these bubbles in which people live, whereas the glop is where most people live in poverty. That's where we're headed. That's If it continues, these is what we see. And the complete destruction of the environment the whole Midwest is a desert. There have been waves of, of disease coming up from other places in the world as it happens now. It's a very prescient book. It's also about the power of the internet for good and bad and about artificial intelligence and our inability to decide what it all means for us and how much control we can possibly have over it. So let's so I, just hear, this is something from your latest collection, I think. This is our legacy. How will they curse us? The third and fourth generations, the ones that survived the deaths we left them. How could we explain the world on fire? Species wiped out daily, oceans with more plastic than fish. That we let a corrupt man stomp refugees, fleeing rape, murder, and hunger. That we let him set blazes no one could put out. We saw the cliff ahead. We were well warned. We took everyone over. This was how our world ends, in lies and greed, vast and numerous maggots dining on the corpse of hope. Why do you choose sometimes to address those issues in poetry and sometimes you're addressing them in uh, novels? Um, um, first of all, now only poetry is really accessible to me because it's very hard to get serious fiction of the type I write published. It's basically novels for ideas are totally different than not ideas for poems. A novel is something you live in for two, three years. 
a poem is something you work on for a few hours, you come back to in a week, maybe you come back again until it's finished. It's a much more direct thing. My novels are, the only one of my novels, Braided Lives, is anything about my life. All the others are the lives I didn't live or how we got here. A lot of my novels have to do with understanding how we got to be where we are. That's true of City of Darkness, City of Light, which is about the French Revolution, which is when the modern women's movement started. Sex Wars, which is about a lot of the similarities of political ferment right after the Civil War and now. A lot of the same issues, immigration, workers' rights, voting rights, of course, abortion, contraception, the role of religion, should Christianity be taught in the schools, all that stuff. They were arguing about then. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had always interested me, and that was one of my modus for writing a book, because she was so much more than Susan B. Anthony. She was interested in prison reform, divorce, marriage, how to teach daughters, how to teach children in general. She was interested in so many more things that are important. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm very interested in these subjects as well. I mean, I know that you decided not to become an academic, but there are basic things about how we can improve our current systems, our educational systems. You know, what are things that you feel can be introduced to our current models? The, the education system has gone to hell, basically. There's not enough money put into it. Oftentimes, teachers have to buy their own supplies for students. The textbooks are so skewed historically as to be nonsense. They don't speak to the kids. They, they skirt anything controversial. And the fact that we're less integrated than we were some time ago uh, is very depressing because if children don't grow up dealing with children who don't look like they do, they're more inclined to be afraid and prejudiced. They're more likely to turn them into boogeymen or think they're inferior because they don't know them. They haven't played with them. They haven't worked with them. The more integrated we are, the more we know about each other. And it's just this whole thing of everyone's school is okay. Everyone is equal, you know, in, in terms of gold stars and everybody has to win something. I don't think that helps a lot. School shouldn't be terrifying. But I can tell you, even when I went to school, I was so bored in high school, I cannot tell you. To me, it was one long boredom. It's like nothing I wanted to learn, almost nothing. I had a few good teachers. But most of what I learned, I learned from books from the library, not from school. I mean, obviously, they're wonderful teachers. I mean, we have to create an environment where they are really f feel like they're valued. Um, they should be paid. <laughs> yes, it's pretty simple. <laughs> no, um, we, we pay the most necessary people the worst. Uh, you know, people who take care of sick people and AIDS and teachers and garbage collectors and people who work in daycare, all the things that have to happen in society, we pay shit for. We pay an enormous amount of money to people who can throw a ball through a hoop. We pay an enormous amount of 
hedge fund people, all the people who, who take over corporations, go in and destroy them, get immensely rich. Well, the people who do what we actually need doing, what we must have to survive, the people who grow food, not the huge corporations that are factory farms where they drain all the water and pollute things, but the independent farmers that used to exist, that still to some degree exist. Uh, that's one of the good things about marijuana. It's bringing back farming. In Truro, there, there, for instance, the next town over, there's a, there's a marijuana farm run by a nurse. Her husband has cancer, and she's got into marijuana and learned all about it because it helped his cancer like nothing else seemed to. It enabled him to continue living. Uh, and so they started farming it. And there's it's other people too, but I know them the best because my husband, he interviewed them. Oh, okay. Uh, and you also collaborated on a book together on writing as well. He's a, a writer as well as an interviewer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, though now he's mostly doing radio and he does these humorous essays. Uh, we wrote a novel together too called Stormtide. Uh, what's that we like? We played together before we were really solidly together. I discovered I didn't, I didn't like running for the stage. What was it about that you're more adapted to novels and poetry? We created a character who was extremely hypocritical and manipulative. And the guy who played him wanted to be a hero. So he played him like he was the good guy and fucked up the entire play doing it. So it didn't make the point we wanted it to. So maybe the thing is you might like writing for the theater, but you want to write for, we can just say good. No, no, also, <laughs> also in a novel, you can skip 30 years, people get old, whatever. Uh, in a play, you have to always be conscious whether if you send them off stage one way, they can get back on stage that way. You're dealing with physical bodies moving around the stage. And you have to be very conscious of that. And I found that very unliberating. <laughs> it wasn't for me. Sure. You're dealing, at least with a novel or with poetry, any limitations you might have are ones that you can work on and they're not dependent. I understand that too. I like very much things that, well, I love, you know, it's a weird thing because I discovered, you know, my first love is writing. I don't want to be indulgent about me, but that's why I love talking to writers. Um, and I always like to see the words on the page and understand it's a visual process instead of a performative process. But just now in the last few years, I've really enjoyed the collaboration of working on, you know, with a lot of different people. Uh, and you kind of breathe. And maybe it's like for you with your activism, you know that there's something that you're not responsible for and then they can do it like really well. Yeah, certainly that is absolutely true. Getting into, into writing, it's, I started writing both fiction and poetry. I got better at poetry much faster. And then when I got good at fiction, you could not publish serious fiction about women until the women's movement started. I remember I, I had said this in a very political novel and it included 
World War II. And the editor said to me, why do you write this up? Why don't you write a nice love story? If you want to set it against war, good. But you should write, be writing love stories. So how did you overcome that? The world had to change. We had to change the world before I could publish my. I got my first novel published because it had a lot of, had a male protagonist. But the world had to change before I could publish my, what I really wanted to write. It's interesting because you had said that you um, aged out of New York. It's very hard to second guess, you know, public taste. Um, I, I don't know. I think that obviously there's all these competing mediums as well, like television. I think that that's where a lot of the audience has gone. Um, well, I don't know what CBS, if they ever do it, will do with Woman on the Edge of Time streaming as a series. Uh, but I doubt I'll even watch it. <laughs> I, maybe out of curiosity, but I'm afraid what they'll do to it. I was all set to go before COVID. They had a director, they had actresses, they had a script. Now it's gone back to ground zero. So to start all over again. So I don't know if it'll ever happen. I think it would, might drive people back to the book. But there's an enormous amount of interest suddenly in Woman on the Edge of Time, as well as to a lesser extent, he, she, and it. It should be a greater extent. But people want to read it, utopias again because things are so bad. These are so bad for most people. Having been poor, I know what they're going through and how, how really awful it is. You have a job, you worked at it, you expected to go on working at it, you were making enough to live on. Maybe you could put a, spit a little away, do some things you wanted to do. You could take a vacation. Now everything's gone. And so many people are food insecure now, as they call it. In other words, hungry, <laughs> plain hungry. It's awful to be hungry. I've been hungry a number of times in my life. And it, it, take, it occupies you. It takes you over. It's what you can think about. It's hard to think. It's hard to study. When kids go to school hungry, it's so hard for them to do the schoolwork, to think about anything except where they're going to get anything to eat. And when you were hungry, could you always find, I mean, I, it's distracting from the ability to do your art. Well, could I you wasn't always... doing art in my childhood. We lived on oatmeal for three weeks. When I, when I was married to Michelle, my, my French physicist husband, we lived on smelt for two weeks. Uh, when I was in college and my best friend went home without lending me money, I lived on a mixture of flour and water for four days because I was working, but I hadn't been, I didn't get paid until the end of the month. And then you also grew up, I guess, with stories of the depression as well. And I lived through the depression. My father was not at work when I was born. And what's happening now reminds you of the depression? It is the depression. Sorry, but a huge number of people are out of work. No, this is another great depression. That's what we're in, and it's getting worse. I don't know how the economy will ever get back to what it was. We're turning into a third world country. Things don't work anymore. You can't get anything fixed. Uh, things, so many things are going under. I don't know how the shellfishermen are going to survive this. 
that was the primary industry in Wellfleet. But with the restaurants closed, they have almost nobody. We're getting oysters this week from an oysterman because, though we barely have room for them in the refrigerator, uh, we, we do it when we can because they have to live. Obviously, we're all hoping for the, the end of COVID. I mean, it goes without saying. I do try to find some hope in, in that sometimes people come together and support each other, as you're saying. I mean, have you found that on the Cape? Yes. And it's not as hard on me because I work, I'm used to working alone. Uh, and we have, after May, I started letting my assistant come in one day a week. Uh, because he's had bad melanoma. He has various conditions. He has to be super careful. And since then, I've built, we've built a bubble of people we trust who have to be careful. Uh, I have three women friends I see on the porch, a social distance apart, the sun porch. It's, it's all the wind blows through it. We're in the woods and it's, it's, you know, where it's like being outside same temperatures outside. I was able to do Rosh Hashanah with two friends. He has cancer. She is a health expert. She's consulted sometimes by the UN, et cetera. She spent 10 years setting up women's clinics in, uh, in South America. She, they're both super careful, super, super careful. They have to be so I can have them open. I just try to be very careful, but the bubble is important. I was getting so depressed in March and April, not seeing anyone except Woody and the cats. And in May, I let my assistant come in, but I wasn't seeing any women. I couldn't stand it. So I started selecting women I dared spend time with in safe conditions. Even though, as you say, you're used to, to working alone, I mean, that's... Your writing is inspired by life. If you don't get enough of it, you're just yeah, listening to yourself. I have been writing much more since I'm seeing the people I trust in my bubble. Yeah. Writing much more. And you continue to, you know, I guess you gather with people on Zoom. Uh, you have your circle of poets as well, I think, circle yeah. of writers where you get some yeah. of that. But I, I couldn't do my every year. Well, not, I've been doing no readings except on Zoom, of course. <laughs> and you get nothing for them or very little compared to what you do with in-person readings. But I I did the audio book for my new book and you get paid for that one. It used to be you got paid almost nothing for audio books. Now they're big time. So you get paid a decent amount for them. Well, uh, also you have a beautiful um, reading voice and it helps us understand your poetry even even better. I I perform. I think it's very important. To me, poetry is on the page, yes, but it's composed of sounds and silences. And speaking it is terribly important. When I read poetry, I have to hear it as I read it. The oral qualities are very important to me. And I wonder, you know, because when you're selling um, 
a book that they you're, you're assuming people are making you're creating the it's like interpreting a piece of music right and not everyone knows how to interpret the music um i wondered would you sometimes make a version of a poem like you change it as you're reading it out loud like you see that's the way it's for oral you know like the how you write for theater or you write for the page yeah i think before a poem goes into a book I want to have performed it enough to hear what works and what doesn't. And you can hear what lines don't work when you're doing it aloud, if you're paying attention, if you're really performing it. Sometimes there's just too many unaccented syllables, and it's like a string of pearls breaking. You have to fix that. Well, I want, I want to thank you for all the pearls and to thank you, Marge Percy, for your poetry, novels, your contributions to our understanding of Jewish culture, your life of personal commitment to feminism, social and environmental justice, your stories that invite us to think and consider the world that we have and the world we want to live in. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Caroline Stoidel. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas and Adelis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.